now let's just get into our, our passage. Let's find our way there. And uh, Luke 22, if you're headed there. And if you remember, it's uh, just to set the scene, what's going on. It's nighttime, and, and Jesus and his apostles have made their way to the, the Mount Olivet, uh, Mount of Olives, and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is just this olive tree grove. Um, it's a little more than a mile outside of Jerusalem, to put it in perspective. Everyone, everyone walks uh, at this time, or rides donkeys, or whatever you can ride. Uh, but to put it in perspective, like uh, Varsity Donuts, I, everything's in reference to that, right? Uh, is a mile from here. It's the same distance, 1.2 miles from here. And that corner of, of uh, K-State over there. So that's kind of the distance you're talking about that they've traveled from the city to the Mount of Olives. Uh, so hopefully you remember last week the disciples were supposed to be praying and, and Jesus goes a stone's throw away uh, and prays to his heavenly Father. And afterwards uh, an angel comes and ministers to Jesus and, and he gets up and he goes back to the apostles and he finds them asleep and at this point, Jesus is encouraging them, again, to pray that they not enter into temptation. And, and as he's saying that, as he's in the middle of explaining this encouragement to them, that's when they get interrupted, as we're going to see in our passage today. And so let's just pick up right there, Luke 22, beginning in verse 47. Uh, he here at the beginning is Jesus. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, have you come out as, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, will you please free us from the mental distractions and cares of this world this morning? Will you please enlighten our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit as we come to your word, as we desire to understand it and to receive it and to be changed by it? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> so being arrested is an embarrassing thing. Uh, I've told the whole story before, so I won't tell the whole story here again today. But uh, one summer during college, I, was, uh, I got a speeding ticket. I was working for a, a summer camp out near Austin, Texas, and got this speeding ticket. Uh, I don't know if I thought I paid for it or just forgot. For whatever reason, I never paid the speeding ticket. And I don't know how it works in Kansas, but in Texas, that means that it turns into a, a warrant arrest, right? It upgrades. Uh, and so a year or so later, I find myself uh, driving to my dad's home in Houston. And the route that I take takes me right past uh, Laura, my wife, right past uh, her family's home uh, on this road. And uh, at, at the time, she was just my brand new girlfriend. Uh, well, I rolled a stop sign right in front of her house, kind of, or a little in front of it, and the police officer sees this, pulls me over precisely in her front yard uh, of all the places. It's all right, though, right? You might get out of this, no big deal, except for her dad standing in the front yard uh, watching this all go down. Uh, and I'd only met him on a few occasions at this point. We didn't have a real great, you know, deep relationship. And so there he is watching his, his daughter's boyfriend get arrested in the front yard of his house. Uh, he was kind enough to come down and to get my keys so my car wouldn't get to uh, you know, towed or anything like that. Now, Laura's inside at the time, and he walks in, and he just tells her, hey, your, your boyfriend's outside getting arrested. Uh, 
things you didn't expect to hear that day. Uh, so even though my crime, if you will, uh, I mean, it was a crime, even though my actual crime uh, was fairly mild, it was mortifying to be arrested in, in front of uh, what would become my future father-in-law, uh, in front of people I know, even just on a street where I, you know, knew some people that could come by and see that. And yet, <clears throat> our, our Lord is not embarrassed at this arrestment, at his arrest. He's not concerned about his reputation. He's not, he's not even anxious about how is this going to, to affect things. Is this going to somehow derail just uh, the redemptive mission that he's on? He's not afraid of those kind of things. And Jesus is not worried because he knows this is not a de- detour. This is not some unexpected thing. This is the way. And, and so then... Let's look at the passage before us. It's, it's dark, remember, right? It's dark. Uh, they're in this fairly secluded place. It's not like people hung out there. This is not the Holiday Inn where people tended to stay. They're, they're camping out there, right? Uh, they're exhausted, and Jesus is encouraging his disciples to pray, and then suddenly this, this crowd shows up, and they don't expect a crowd because it's not a place the crowd show up, especially at night. And this crowd is made up of, of the Jewish leaders and, and priests uh, and temple officers and their servants. And from other gospel accounts, we know that uh, there's also Roman soldiers that are with them. In, uh, with them, It's quite this just eclectic mob, if you will. And, and again, from other accounts, we know that they have with them, they have lanterns and they have torches and they've got weapons, swords for, for sure, right? It's, it's, it's a mob is what it is. And it, it's, it's no surprise to Jesus at all here. But uh, for the other apostles, you can only imagine how shocked they are to look up and to see this crowd and then to realize, wait, Oh, that's Judas leading them, right? I mean, how long did it take them in that moment to kind of put it together to realize, oh, it's, it's Judas. Judas is the one that Jesus was telling us about at dinner that was going to betray him and, and to put that all together. And you can't help but wonder, are they, are they angry at this moment? What do they want to do to Judas at this moment? Or are they just relieved to find out, oh, it's not me? Um, we don't know, right? I mean, who knows exactly what they were feeling at this moment? What we do know is that immediately Judas approaches Jesus, and, and we don't see it in the passage, right, because Jesus speaks to him, but he does end up kissing Jesus. Uh, Matthew 26 tells us, right, that Judas kisses Jesus. Uh, most likely, this was a kiss on the cheek, and, and Jesus' next word to Judas were, were probably spoken even as he delivered it, right, as it comes, uh, as he's kissed on the cheek uh, here. And so, um, now, for us, as, as Americans, it, kissing seems weird. This is the part that tends to make us just kind of, I, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us. If, you know, if, if, if I had tried to greet you this morning with, with a kiss, I expect that would probably make most of you uncomfortable. Um, I'm certain it would have made me uncomfortable to have done that, because as Americans in our culture, that's just not how we roll. Uh, However, today in the Middle East and in parts of Europe and even parts of South America, before COVID anyway, uh, greeting with a, a kiss on the cheek is actually quite common, even between two men. It doesn't communicate what you think it communicates as an American. Uh, a, a kiss on the cheek greeting between friends was absolutely the custom in Jesus' day. In fact, we're encouraged in the, in the book of Romans and in First and Second Corinthians and in First Thessalonians and in First Peter. In, in all of these books, right, they come to the end of the book and, and we're encouraged to greet one another as Christians um, with a holy kiss or with a kiss of love is the, is the way it is put. This practice was, was more intimate than we tend to think of a handshake. It's really something closer to what we consider a, a hug, right? Uh, women in our culture do a really good job of greeting each other with hugs. 
Some men will do it uh, with a, a close friend when they see them, we'll, we'll give them a hug. It's a, a simple sign of affection is what we're seeing. Now, honestly, I, I wish we did a better job uh, of showing physical affection to one another. Now, if I'm honest, a kiss is too weird for me. Don't try to kiss me after the service. Uh, but we should probably all be more huggers, more touchers, right, in, in good, affectionate ways. Uh, sadly, though, right, as we come to this, uh, this kiss here, this kiss of Judas, it, it doesn't communicate affection. It doesn't communicate love. Uh, it's a sign of absolute betrayal. And in fact, you've probably seen it at some point just in popular culture, this reference to a, a Judas kiss, right? It just means that, that someone close to you, usually a, a friend or a family member that you trusted, has stabbed you in the back, so say, or, you know, betrayed you in one way or another. Practically speaking, this kiss was a prearranged sign to those who would arrest Jesus. Uh, for Judas told them, right, in Matthew 26, 48, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. It marks him. This is the guy that you're to arrest. Now, even this might seem strange to us because, uh, sure, they need Jesus to take them there, right? Show us where he's at. But you'd think when they get there, they would just know who Jesus is. He's, he, he's famous at this point. He's been walking around in public, preaching in public. Why in the world do they need to show him that? Well, remember, they've probably only seen Jesus from a distance. They've always seen him during the daytime. Uh, and I know today, if, if you or I are, you know, if you're meeting someone at a coffee shop, you probably have some idea of what they look like. Maybe you've been given some identifier, like she's, she's going to have a red blouse on, or he's got, you know, curly red hair, whatever it might be, uh, something of that nature. We, we might even Facebook stalk someone ahead of time, so you kind of have an idea, okay, this is what this guy looks like. Um, but at the time, there weren't photos being passed around, and, and identifiers, can you imagine how helpful those would be, you know? So Judas, what's, what's Jesus look like? Could you explain this to us? And he explains, well, he's, he's Jewish, and he's got a beard, and he's, he's got a robe on. That just described pretty much every adult male in the entire nation, right? Um, and, and so in the dark, Judas then, you know, walks up to Jesus, and he, and he kisses him, so that those making the rest know exactly which man he is. And, and their fear is probably that somehow he's going to wiggle out and escape, and they're going to arrest Matthew and not find out until later. Uh, and so then look at verse 48. Uh, these words are the last words Jesus speaks to Judas. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Right, right? Jesus hints at the irony here that a, a kiss, right, this sign of affection is, is being used as a, as a sign of, of betrayal. You know, influenced by the devil himself, Judas pretended to show affection with a kiss. It's pure hypocrisy at the highest level here. Luke gives us a, a very short version of Jesus' arrest, right? There's not a whole lot of details in here. Uh, it's kind of like cliff notes in my age. I think spark notes, I don't know, Twitter today, something that summarizes things for you. Uh, John gives a longer version, and he tells us after the initial betrayal that, that Jesus asked the mob in John, John 18, 4, he says, whom do you seek? And the mob, mob answers him, Jesus of Nazareth. That's what they tell Jesus. And, and Jesus tells them, I am he. And something happens at that moment. When, when Jesus says that, they all fall backwards. They fall on the ground as if some force, because some force, uh, has just kind of burst out of Jesus in this miraculous way. It's a physical manifestation of Jesus' authority and his glory and his power and his might and all those things. It's, it's almost funny at this point when you think about it too, that, that here's this mob showing up with with weapons, right? They, they've come to arrest Jesus, and the first thing he does is show them this, this power that he has. It's, it, it'd be like, right, uh, going to fight Conor McGregor, that UFC guy, with a wiffle ball bat, as if somehow that's going to help you in any way. 
You have no idea who this man is you're trying to arrest. Uh, meanwhile, in verse 49, we see the apostles want to protect their Lord. And, and so they ask, should, should we strike with the sword? Right? Should we, should we defend you? Should, should we fight right now, Jesus? That's the question. It's a, it's a good instinct that they have here, right? I, I hope you too would be ready to fight to protect those that you love, that you are under your, your care, that you're responsible for, uh, that you'd respond the same way and, and wondering that, right? Only with Jesus, it's different. Jesus doesn't need them to fight his battle for him on any level at all. He doesn't want them to. Just like, you know, you don't hear a noise outside and think, oh, there's an invader in my house and find your you know, you know, youngest child, send him out there, go, go see what's going on. You know, you would never do that. It would be ridiculous. Also, the, uh, the apostles don't know what Jesus knows here. They don't know that, that this is the will of God for their actual redemption. They don't realize how they're actually getting in the way of what God's come to accomplish. Unfortunately, they don't get to hear Jesus' answer because one of the apostles goes at the mob with a sword right off the bat before there's any answer. And I, I, I love this. You can see it in Luke, right? The way Luke describes this person, he's so gracious. He refers to the apostle who strikes with the sword as just one of them. One of them did this. No one needs to know his name. Don't want to throw him under the bus. And remember, Luke's not an apostle himself. Uh, John, though, John's an apostle, and he just throws the swordsman under the bus, right? He's like, uh, the, guy, it, the guy who did it, John 18, right? It, it was Simon Peter. That's who it was, first thing he says. He had a sword, he drew out his sword, and then he went after the guy, and, and, and he cut off the high priest's ear, or no, not the high priest, his servant's ear, uh, right? And, and you kind of think about that. Sometimes you forget, like, the, the reality of where this comes into to play in life, and just Knowing men and the way they do things, I expect the apostles for the rest of Peter's life kind of reminded him of this, this rash moment, right? Hey, Peter, remember? Yeah, I remember. I remember. Uh, you know, just kind of all the time that he just jumped into this. Now, now, John also tells us the name of the guy whose ear got cut off, a guy named Malchus. And uh, here's what's interesting about that, right? And when these things are written early on, people could have followed up with this story to find out about this kind of thing. You're naming the actual, actual guy. Now, Presumably, as Peter lunged with the sword, maybe Malchus ducked and the sword, you know, nicked his ear and chopped it off. Who, who knows? Uh, if I'm Peter, I'm probably claiming the rest of my life I was, I'm that sharp. I just aimed for his ear. It's a warning shot. Uh, pinpoint accuracy. We don't know, right? I mean, we'll have to ask Peter someday. Now, why does Peter do this? And if you think back, one of the reasons Peter might have done this is is that he's still bothered by Jesus saying just earlier this same day, right? But, but, but you know, that you're going to betray me before this night is over. And so maybe Peter in this moment is wanting to prove, no, I'm not. I'm not going to betray you. I never betray you. I'm so, I'm so faithful to you, Lord. Watch me fight. I will fight in this moment. Maybe that's the reason he's so quick to jump up and show that he's not going to betray his Lord. Now, Jesus in this moment immediately says, no more of this. No more of this. He stops it. And it is good, right? Because this could have quickly turned into a skirmish between these groups with the, the apostles with their two swords and everyone else with more of them, uh, right? It could have turned into some of that. And, and, and we know, right, Peter's zeal in this moment quickly fades after his arrest. This is kind of the end of Peter's zeal right there. Uh, of this, J.C. Ryle, uh, often called the last Puritan, I think it's a great title. Anyway, uh, he says this, the lesson here is deeply instructive. To suffer patiently for Christ is far more difficult than to fight actively. To sit still and endure calmly is far harder than to fight a battle. Crusaders will always be found more numerous than martyrs. The passive graces of religion are far rarer and precious than the active graces. 
Work for Christ may be done from many spurious motives, from excitement, from emulation, from party spirit, or from love of praise. Suffering for Christ will seldom be endured from any but one motive, and that motive is the grace of God. So it's worth noting here also that regardless of of how misguided these Jewish authorities are and the Roman guards even are, um, the Roman guards do have an actual right place of authority. They have the right to to come and make this arrest, right? Um, Peter should have not resisted. He does. Uh, Furthermore, we learn in Matthew 26, 52 that that Jesus here says to Peter, Peter, uh, put your sword back in its place for those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Uh, You know that by a much more common phrase. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And I I find it interesting then when you look at Peter's life, and we know this not from from scriptural account, but things outside of historical documents outside of uh, the scriptures, that Peter does not die by the sword. That's not the way he goes on to live the rest of his life. He he dies by a cross, crucified like his Savior. And so we might say Peter lived by the cross, not by the sword. Then in verse 51, we, we learn that Jesus miraculously heals Malchus's chopped off ear, uh, just heals it. Now, um, in college, I, I, I played rugby for a year, and one of my teammates, this is gruesome, had his ear just ripped to where it was just barely hanging on and flopping upside down. And I remember looking at it and thinking, I'm going to throw up. Um, that's not how he saw it, though. He just put the thing back up, and they put gauze and duct tape around his head. He finished the game, and then he went to the ER, and and they stitched it up, and his ear for the rest of his life has just been this wonky-looking thing. Um, anyway, I mean, it's, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, I think about that injury, but here in the garden, in, in this darkness, here is Jesus with just a, a mere touch, right? Whether he recreates the ear because it's missing, or, or whether he, I don't know, right? It's just this miraculous thing where he heals Malchus's ear. It's, it's a miracle, too. That's interesting. It's, it's, it's worked on an enemy, an enemy who never asked for it, an enemy who has no faith, and, and an enemy who, as far as we can tell, never shows any gratitude for this miracle that Jesus worked on his ear. ear. So why, why does Jesus do it? It doesn't even fit the, the, the pattern we see when Jesus does other miracles in the Gospels. I'll tell you, the, the, the main reason he does it is because they've, they've come to an arrest an, an innocent man in Jesus, a man who has no reason to be arrested uh, as far as him committing an actual crime. Uh, these authorities are going to spend the night actually trying to conjure up something, you know, what are the tar- charges we're going to bring against Jesus? Now, Peter's violent act gives them a reason to arrest Jesus, right? He's the leader of this group that's now attacking a uh, servant of the, the priest, and so by healing his ear, Jesus removes the possibility of that charge. We, we, we can learn from our Lord's example here, right? How, how are we to respond when we are mistreated as Christians? All right? There's something to be said of that we don't retaliate. We don't just seek to get our revenge. We, if we wish to follow the example of our Lord here, we are to bless our enemies. It's quite relevant today, actually, because we live in a time when, in many ways, we, we feel our faith is under attack. And, and Christians often even use the term warfare to describe what's going on in our culture. Philip Riken, regarding this, he says this, whatever attack we are under, we must never forget that our real warfare is spiritual warfare. And our only weapons are spiritual weapons like prayer and preaching of the gospel. It puts it in a perspective for us. Now, verse 52, look at that in front of you. Jesus says to the Jewish leaders, he says, have you come out against, as against a robber with swords and, and clubs? 
when I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. He's pointing out he's not been violent. He's not been a criminal. What's with all of this? There's been no sign that this was necessary. He's done everything in the light. He's done everything publicly. And, and yet they're coming after him as if he's some violent mobster. And then in verse 53, Jesus says, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. When Jesus says, this is your hour, a 60-minute clock doesn't begin to tick, right? It's not the idea there. The idea is that this begins this short period of time uh, when, you know, he's, he's saying, is it you evil men will, will have your way. This is your time to work. It's, it's really giving it over to let them, let them do what they want. Uh, you can see Holly's sweatshirt today says, not today, Holly, uh, not today Satan. Um, Right? In, in this moment, though, it's, it's, it's as if Jesus takes off that sweatshirt and, you know, this is your moment. This is your moment to do what you want to do. And, and Judas delivers a, a treacherous kiss during this hour, during this moment, right? To, to the very person who he's been calling Lord for a few years now. This is the moment when the Jewish leaders make their unjustified arrest. Later, later the crowd is going to demand that a murderer be set free while Jesus is condemned. An innocent man. Roman guards are going to nail the author of life or put nails through the hands of the author of life onto a shameful cross. From the night of Jesus' arrest to the morning of Jesus' resurrection is the hour when it looks like darkness and evil and the devil are going to win. For here is Jesus, right? Here's the the hope of the world, everything they've been expecting, and, and here he is just submitting to these evil men. Can you imagine what this looked like to the apostles? There's a, a scene in, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that, that illustrates this beautifully. Um, the Christ character, Narnia, if you don't know, is, is a massive, huge lion. His name's Aslan, and, and it's just so powerful. And on the night that he's taken captive, his, his enemies at first are just terrified of him. Terrified. Right? Because he's this massive lion and they've just seen how powerful he is. And they're afraid to tie him up when they're told to. They're like, I don't know about that. Uh, you know, because he's this massive lion. And, and yet, that, that massive, powerful, mighty lion ends up just submitting himself. He allows himself to be tied up in this moment. And, and hiding in the bushes are, are two of Aslan's friends, disciples, uh, Lucy and Susan. And, and, and they looked on and they're just confused by, why is he allowing this? He, he's just giving up. There's no reason for that. They can't understand it. Uh, to them, it just looks like evil's winning, and our only hope of victory is, is submitting himself to evil in this moment. And the evil witch and all of her, her evil creatures, they also think we are winning. We are going to win this. And, and Narnia <clears throat> illustrates the true reality well, because here, here is Jesus. He's a man, but he's also divine. He's, he's the son of God. He and all that gives him access to powers that are just so beyond anything any human in any point in history have ever seen. He could absolutely just obliterate, obliterate these enemies. And, and yet Jesus just submits himself in this moment. And I can't help but think if I'm the, one of the apostles watching this go on, just, that would be terrifying. Jesus, you're going to just let them take you Really? I mean, it looks like the end of everything that they've been hoping for, and you just can't believe that they'd let him do this. Now, you know, Jesus says, 
when Jesus says, this is your hour, he's, he's telling these enemies, he's telling them, you're fulfilling your purpose, you're demonstrating darkness, you, you can have your hour of darkness because what you don't realize is, is you and all of this is, is a part of the redemption that I've come to accomplish and this is all part of the way it goes. You understand this? The, the hour of the devil's dark power is, is also the bright day of our redemption. What it looks like to them is very different than what reality is here. The, the Jewish leaders mean this arrest for evil, but God means it for good. God was at work even during the dark hour of our Lord's betrayal. Christian, God's at work today in your life even when you go through dark trials. He's at work even now. Even if, the, you know, like the disciples in this moment, even if you cannot see how that is possible. In this hour, the way Jesus is working is, is simply to submit himself. It's not what you'd expect. And In John 18, 11, we, we learn on this night that after Jesus tells Peter and the other apostles, right, no more of this, he also tells Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Right? You're getting in the way of what I'm here to do. You see, Jesus submits himself in this time because this is the path to the cross, and the cross is how and when Jesus accomplishes redemption. Listen to how Colossians 2.13-15 through 15 lays it out. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities to put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus will triumph through this. In the end, when Christ returns, he will triumph even further, right? If Jesus doesn't submit in this moment, though, to these evil men, he won't be tried. And he won't be nailed to a Roman cross. And he won't be, this, be sacrificed. And, and that would mean you are still guilty of your sin, eternally damned for it. And so let us be thankful for our Lord's submission in this moment. It's hard to see, if you really think about it. It's hard as a, a Christian to even look at it. And, and if you really think deeply on it on any level, it's, it's just difficult to see what Jesus goes through for us. So what do we learn from this passage? Right? Well, a few things. We, we, we can learn to, to love others like we see Jesus do. He makes a personal sacrifice for the sake of his people and for the sake of submitting to the will of his Father. But we can learn to, to love Jesus for who he is and, and not, not like Judas who views him only in terms of what he might gain materially, physically, in the, you know, from him. We, we, can, we can learn to to show not false affection, but true, warm affection for each other. Hugs, smiles, holy kisses, whatever. Uh, we, we can learn from Peter something about zeal here. Zeal for God is a, it's a good thing, it really is. Uh, but zeal without knowledge is, is dangerous. Now, now, most of us could use a little more zeal in our life, if we're honest. We're probably too unmotivated to love God, to love our neighbors, to do much of anything, really. Uh, zeal is good, it's real good, but it must be with godly knowledge. It must be in line with scripture. It must be driven by love for God. It must be driven by love for our neighbors, right? Uh, love uh, in the way that, that God defines it in his word, not just the way we want to define it. And, and, and so let us, 
let us pray for zeal, but let us pray and seek to have zeal with knowledge. We, we can learn here to follow our Lord's example when betrayed by someone at work or a friend or a, a family member, someone who betrays your trust. We tend to just want revenge, right? Smite them. Uh, we want to get even, but we see Jesus here continue to be kind to his enemies. We can be kind to our enemies. We can, as Romans 12, 14 commands us, right? Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Of course, to do that requires the grace of God, and it's only doable as the Holy Spirit works through us. But more than anything in this passage, I, I think what we learn here, I really think what I want you to learn here is, is how willing our Lord was to be betrayed by a friend, how, how willing he was to be shamefully arrested and falsely tried and nailed to a cross, where at that moment the wrath of God that your sin deserves and my sin deserves, that our sin deserves, was poured out upon him. A suffering that we cannot possibly comprehend because Jesus did it for us. Here we, we learn the love of God for us is far greater than mere words. And sometimes that's the most applicable thing we see in a passage. I know sometimes we're like, well, what do I go? What do I, what do, I do from this? Well, what you do is, is look to Christ. What you do is, is look and see, look, look what my sin deserved. Look what it cost Jesus. And understand just the depth of his love for you. And so I'll ask you this at the end. Do, do you trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? Because you should. And you can. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, if we have merely heard your gospel and not embraced it, if we have walked among your people but not been your people, if we have more in common with Judas than Peter, we ask that today you would change that. Change us. Grant genuine faith and repentance and confidence in, in Christ's death on the cross. Give us a great love for you and give us true rest in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.